Hey, Daniel, how's it going? Hey, Evan. Uh, it's all right. It's a Friday afternoon. I think I've mentioned that a few times. I just installed a dartboard in my office and I'm excited to use it. Uh, how's your how's your uh, Friday going here? Uh, my Friday is going well. I'm sorry for making you record at four o'clock in the afternoon, East Coast time. So <laughs> I'll be more cognizant next time on scheduling. <laughs> uh, things are good here. Just plugging away, getting ready for the weekend. Thankfully, it's a nice holiday weekend kind of ish coming up so yeah yeah for listeners we're recording right before easter so uh this will come out a little bit later though yeah well on this episode uh which is episode number eight for us we are going to discuss have you planted your decision trees so we're excited to bring on our reoccurring guest and a new guest from our wilshire team cool let's jump right in i'll start out with some introductions here. And for our first introduction today, uh, they have 18 years of EHR and Epic implementation and optimization experience. Six and a half of those were at Epic, uh, working across a few different hospitals, some large academics, uh, but also then after Epic went over to Switzerland, uh, did another international project, which I've also had the opportunity to do. Um, So very fun. Curious to hear a little bit about that. Uh, They hold many certifications uh, including billing and Epicure inpatient, which might be our first inpatient uh, certification on the podcast. Uh, but their specialty and passion is front-end applications and workflows. Uh, and that's what we're here to talk about today. Thanks, Melissa, for joining us. Thanks for having me. Excited to be here. The very first podcast, to be on it. I'm an avid listener. Been listening to what you guys have been doing. Sounds great. Long-time listener, first-time participant here <laughs> And fun fact, uh, Melissa loves a good murder mystery podcast. So if you can get on one with her about that, anybody, she she will geek out with you. So, all right. Well, <laughs> I get the pleasure of reintroducing our second guest. Uh, I think it's their second time or third time now joining us um, on the podcast. And uh, we just planned some future episodes with them, too. Um, 10 years in patient access implementation and optimization former Epic as well, supporting large multi-systems um, and academic settings. Um, he's our Director of Innovation here at Wilshire. Welcome back, Matt. Yeah, thanks for having me back. I'm excited to hang out with you all again. As much as I love innovation at Wilshire, patient access is my true passion. Don't tell anybody. So I'm even more excited for today's episode. So thanks for having me. Very good. Very good. Um, the ex-epic outnumber the non-ex-epic, Kevin. I apologize for today in advance. Uh, but let's jump in. Uh, Melissa, Matt, I'll let you decide who wants to go first. Who is more passionate about decision trees and can give us the best overview today? <laughs> Should I start, Matt? And then you can fill in with any of the things that I, I miss. Yeah, I think it's true that you are a little more passionate than me. So I'll let you kick it off. <laughs> So uh, decision trees are the name of a tool that are built into Epic, and they help guide the um, scheduling user, whoever's scheduling the appointment, um, through a streamlined set of questions um, that will ultimately find the right outcome. When designed correctly, (laughs) we'll find the right outcome um, for which uh, provider to schedule, in what time frame, what visit type, perhaps if there's other um, considerations, um, just instructions to help support um, the scheduler in finding the right 
uh, placement on the schedule for a patient. What I miss. Yeah, the, the way, way I think about it, yeah, I mean, no, that's great. I mean, the way I think about it too is, you know, it's a scheduling tool primarily, but it really fits in between the entire referral process between your primary care and specialty care areas. Like Melissa mentioned, it's a, a scheduling uh, tool where the scheduler gets, you know, questions. There's logic behind the scenes. Based on that, it'll drive them to schedule to a particular provider in a particular time frame. So, yeah, I think that's a good summary. So when someone's using a decision tree and we have this streamlined experience, it's it can be deceiving about, um, okay, well, that seems like it's pretty straightforward. Um, when it's designed well, it should be very streamlined, but there's a lot of um, really interesting detailed conversations that go into decision tree design. And we tap into the expertise of um, the department experts, um, the schedulers that have um, just a binder or sheets of paper, post-it notes of how to schedule correctly and which providers have which preferences. We talk with the clinical teams, um, nursing physicians to get their input. Um, and sometimes what we find is that things don't quite align. So there's uh, discussions that happen um, with, okay, this is how one group thought that these are scheduled, this is the other, let's make sure that we're um, on the same page because all of that needs to go into before you start building the, the tree. And I guess the other factor there too is um, the other variable across um, different organizations that have set up decision trees is what is the state um, and how long perhaps the uh, organization has been live on EPIC because there could be lots of different legacy approaches that will also influence um, what are some of the things that might need to be tightened up or adjusted before implementing decision trees. How does, uh, so, you know, thinking of it from a hospital perspective and, my, and, and since I'm the ops guy on the team, to the team today um, and trying to look at it from that, you know, we have this, what we industry now has coined registrars, right? Or registration people who also do scheduling. And we're seeing some of them in more of our physician-based areas, but we're also seeing a lot of it in the hospital-based areas. So are decision trees accessible for both environments? So the ambulatory setting and in the hospital setting, or is it primarily just leverage with that, you know, referral workflow and component coming out of the more of that ambulatory area whenever the is a cadence appointment is an appointment so maybe there's inpatient scheduling and it's and the appointment is getting made onto a template um that's really if that's what is being used on the inpatient side then that would be a tool that would support it but but it's not necessarily for like an admission in to the hospital i think that, yeah i think some of the true power when you think about maybe centralize some of, some, of, some of those functions where you have maybe a centralized registration team or a centralized auth team or a centralized scheduling team, being able to put some of those department rules for scheduling into the decision tree kind of takes away some of the barriers to entry for you know, knowing all the specifics and, and having to have that written down in a piece of paper. So as you have folks that are doing more of these dual roles, maybe across, uh, uh, HB and PB or spanning multiple departments, the decision trees help them in guiding the schedule wherever they need to. So 
it, you know, we're, we can serve the patient wherever they need to get scheduled, regardless of maybe where that user is specifically focused on or, or scheduling or doing registration or whatever patient access functions that they're primarily in charge of. Is this also interfacing then over with the optime component to say for optime scheduling? Are, are they able to append decision trees as well, knowing like what's open available for those providers? Case time saying like this type of, let's say, you know, I'm an ortho doc, but I prefer to do all my total hips, knees in the morning and then do my more of my wrist, hands in the afternoon, shoulders, those types of things. Like, can that leverage out? I'm just trying to dive a little bit more in for our listeners to understand, like, what are the little nuances and components that it really can get into those technicalities? You know, for me, somebody who like, I know patient access workflows and front end high level, I can guide and provide guidance, but I would never be able to dive in to say like, hey, this is when you should look at using utilization of implementation of a decision tree versus having like your cheat sheet departmental guides or or whatever those may be in, in that regards. And, you know, thinking of from a back end, I think Spencer said it great to me one day is like, well, you can do billing workflows in it, but think of decision trees kind of similar up front, but I still trying to understand like how, when would I, when would I recommend to my clients or even a department that I'm working with to, oh, you might want to leverage that, this type of component of Epic. Do you want to talk about the surgery matter? I can. Yeah, I can. So, so the first question about op time, you wouldn't, you wouldn't use decision trees in that scenario necessarily, although there are tools within surgery scheduling that to like accomplish some of those same things. I would say it does impact similar physicians and a lot of the work that Melissa and I are doing on our current project, you know, we're in specialty areas, primarily surgical specialties where we have providers that are seeing patients in the outpatient setting, also doing surgeries at the same time. And, you know, part of just general scheduling functionality is, um, you know, being able to integrate the schedules, look for overlap so that, you know, we're not scheduling over physicians, surgical time or anything like that. But primarily we're using decision trees to coordinate those new patient referrals that are coming into those specialties for providers that are seeing these patients, determining if they're surgical candidates, just determining if this is a you know a patient that we want to treat within this specialty area in general. In terms of your your second question, you know, like what's a good some good keywords, you know, like is this a good fit? I think we we like to use this in areas where patients have or where departments have high referral backlogs. So we have lots of referrals coming into the department. We're not able to um, triage and schedule them appropriately, and because of that, we have referrals that are sitting out there haven't been addressed in months or longer and you know really can have an impact on the amount of patients we can see within a specialty or routing patients to the right providers so that they can see the right types of patients keep your providers happy in that regard also another way we think about it departments that have i know shows or cancellations which you know can certainly drive revenue for some of those specialty areas a lot of times you see those no-shows when you're scheduling patients six months, seven months in the future, which is common, unfortunately, in some of those specialties. And so if we can help prioritize via decision tree to get those patients seen to those scheduling providers, to those specialty providers, especially the more urgent ones, especially the ones that you know might be surgical candidates, all things you can do in a decision tree, then that's going to make the providers happy. Patients are way more likely to show up, you know, if their appointments 
a couple of weeks from now rather than seven months from now. And that gets those patients seen with the no specialty departments also driving revenue. So high referral backlogs, losing referrals, referral leakage, no shows, cancellations, all things that impact a revenue cycle, although are typically seen as you know, more on the scheduling side of things. Those are great things that we target with decision trees. I was thinking of, as we're like painting a picture of like where decision trees are used to, maybe we can talk about it in terms of like before and after. So like before, um, when a patient is seen in the emergency department and they um, need to follow up with established care with a, with a primary care physician or be seen in a, um, get an appointment secured with a certain specialty, depending on whatever their chief complaint was. The staff in the ED, how are in the world are they going to know all of the different providers across the organization or how to book or who the right person is in one of those specialties? So as decision trees become available for those specialties, there's an opportunity if you don't need to have um, someone in the department or try to get someone on the phone, hopefully the visit happened during um, uh, clinic hours to, to have the patient leave the uh, emergency department with an with appointment. Um, so that's a, one example of before and after. Another before would be, okay, this is orthopedics and depending on which provider it is, they have a particular um, a member of their team that schedules their appointments. Um, so there's a little bit of a, of a it's, we're, we're talking with that person of like, what are the things that you're asking? What are the like conditions that are correct? And if it's a certain condition, where does it go instead of it, if the physician doesn't see that? So then there's other teams you can um, scale and uh, really leverage that person's time because quite often those um, team members that are fielding those calls and finding the right place on the provider's schedule um, have a lot of other um, things that they can be doing and working on and it doesn't need to just be them. I, I love the ED example, Melissa, because a lot of times, you know, you're getting that patient in the emergency department. If you can get them scheduled before they leave, like the chances of retaining that patient, keeping them with them within the system greatly increase. Like if we don't get them before they leave, we may never see them again. And there's lots of downstream impacts to that, maybe more hospital readmissions. But so if we can leverage decision trees, give them the tools to get that patient placed in the primary care, specialty care, that increases our chances of keeping that patient, seeing them again um, within the system. So another great tool. And again, that emergency department scheduler is not going to know all the rules for getting them into each individual specialty or primary care department. The decision trees can help drive that, answer a couple of questions, especially with the patient in front of you, and that patient leaves with an appointment, which is great for the patient as well. Earlier, Melissa was talking about the work that gets done to put in the build out decision trees. We're talking to a lot of different people. What do those barriers to entry look like to getting these built up? Like they're a magical tool. I'm hearing like all the benefits of it, like how much work and like what does it look like to build this out? And then when you go all get plugged in, how do you think about like where's our target areas? Like say we if we had unlimited resources, obviously we'd probably do this everywhere. I think there could be a benefit. I'm I'm hearing that this is a great tool, but um, if there aren't unlimited resources and we live in a constrained world, what does that look like? Matt, I don't know if you want to start us out here. 
That's such a loaded yeah, question. I, I, I had to I, take I, note. Uh, I had to take notes. I'm like, okay, <laughs> one keyword barriers. Okay, two like prioritization. <laughs> yeah, I mean, there are, certainly are a lot of people that we're pulling into a project like this. It really, you know, in the project that Melissa and I are currently on, um, just in get like one of the barriers is just getting engagement with the different areas, especially. You know, we got, we're, we're really trying to include provider community in these decision trees. I think it's a critical success factor. Like if your goal is to schedule patients accurately to providers within your specialty departments, you got to have the provider's input on what they want and who they want to see and how you route patients to them. And it's a challenge, you know, to coordinate uh, different providers. They certainly will have different opinions about challenge to even like interpret like well sometimes this and sometimes that like the sometimes like that's what causes the issues sorry I like interrupted but that was like my passion I was like trying to hold it back and then hmm, like to try to get to the bottom of like what is it exactly that you want because sometimes it's like it doesn't quite add up but a typical project you know we're meeting with everyone from schedulers to patient access, you know, leadership to nursing, to providers, you know, a, a typical decision tree, if we're just working on one from beginning to end, probably takes us a few months of, you know, continuous work of a month of just going back and forth on designing the different inputs, the different questions, the different logic, you know, like Melissa said, uh, narrowing down like the, okay, I know this happens sometimes, but like, we need to make a decision on what's the you know, the likely outcome for some of these things. And so a month or two of doing the design, a month or two of doing the build and testing within Epic, and that's for one specialty. And so when you compound that by 20 specialties across a typical healthcare organization, you can see a project like this, you know, takes a long amount of time. Um, so that's definitely a barrier is like these, it takes a lot of work. You can, you know, and I think with decision trees, like most anything, you can, you sort of fill up the amount of time you want. Like you could spend a limited amount of time making the greatest decision trees in the world, programming every single scenario, or you can, you know, put a couple of basic questions in there and not really do them very well and not do a whole lot of them. So it's really about finding the right balance of like getting the right amount of scenarios to really drive change while also, you know, addressing the, you know, 80, 20 type of things. That's where Melissa and I are probably, a good, I always describe it as more like a yin and yang because Melissa's the detailed one and I'm the not detailed one. So we balance each other out pretty well when it comes to a project like this. But yeah. Yeah, I'm like, Matt, help me, bring me up a level. I can't stop. <laughs> like, okay, I'm in it. I just want to make this thing perfect. It makes such a big difference. Like, it, it makes me really proud when I hear the feedback because at the beginning, like when we're thinking still in terms of before and after, it's like, oh my goodness, like, is this going to be worth it? Like it's working good enough right now. Just keep me with one of like the hundred uh, call center transfer numbers. I'm one of them. Just keep on transferring it to me. I'll take care of it. I'll take care of it. And then um, after when the, when the feedback comes that like, wow, I can see the information I need right at my fingertips. There's like what I used to have to go dig around to figure out what was like, had this patient been seen here before? When was it? Who'd they see? Like when all of that is just there, 
it makes such a big difference. It saves so much time. Like this is easier because there's definitely been, I think in terms of barriers, the, this is working good enough right now. Why, why do we even want to do this? Like just be, being able to see what is the benefit? What is, what this could look like on the other side? Well, on that note, we're going to dive into what the benefit is a little bit after this break. We'll be right back. There are thousands of medical offices and facilities across America, each navigating through changing regulations and reimbursement models while striving for positive patient experiences and outcomes. A common element in each of these facilities is patient access, the front line of both the revenue cycle and the patient experience. Though diverse in facility size and geography, patient access professionals unite around a common purpose, enhancing the overall patient experience to increase patient satisfaction and outcomes. Through it all, one organization is there to educate, connect, inform, and pave the way toward the future of patient access. The National Association of Healthcare Access Management recognizes the changing role of patient access professionals and their increased importance. And we're back. Continuing our thought on the benefits, um, Melissa, who's who's like our primary uh, feedback giver or who's going to be raving the most about decision trees and who like that target audience for this conversation? Uh, is there a particular person in mind at a like health and healthcare organization that you you think of when you think about decision trees and getting this in the door and getting the conversation started? Well, the primary user and the and the teams that are going to be giving the feedback are the ones that are working in the tool, and then the uh, feedback that they're going to be getting is if they're um, getting. Um, uh, if, if they're experiencing like mistakes or the um, unhappy providers or overbooking clinics or things like that. So when we're looking at who, it, it's good when it's not something that's visible once it's going for the um, providers that are getting um, the appointments on their schedule, everything's going smoothly. Decision trees aren't something that's part of their um, day, but uh, having the scheduling team, we know that that team is pulled in a lot of different directions, um, and that they're ex they can be doing their role with confidence. They can be giving great customer service. They can have that information for the patients when they're on the phone in a high stress environment. Um, and that they can, I guess, have, have the ability to um, be able to learn and expand into other specialties and learning more about like what are, uh, it's, it, they just don't need to be pigeonholed into one particular area. There's lots of different um, areas that they can expand into and decision trees help enable that in, in, that, um, in that way. Yeah, I think like that patient access director, maybe over a uh, you know, centralized scheduling or centralized registration area, you know, as they're bringing on new staff, and often we see that's an area that has a lot of turnover in terms of folks coming and going, you know, without having to go through individually, like, okay, for cardiology, here's your PDF of the 20 rules you need to memorize to schedule effectively. 
we really hope that decision trees can decrease that onboarding time. So there's certainly someone that would benefit from that, like not having to have staff, um, you know, spend a lot of time onboarding and being able to schedule appointments or maybe be able to focus on lots of different areas. Maybe they focused on these two departments previously, but okay, we want them to start scheduling over here and that provides that framework. Or we want them to, you know, focus on doing other things. We can we can regiment our staff in different ways to, um, you know, focus on registration or scheduling or any of the above. But yeah, I mean, I think to Melissa's first point too, like, you know, if we get providers happy and they don't notice that it's a thing, that's pretty good. You know, we don't want them um, having to, because I think the, the scenario we're trying to solve is, you know, patient gets scheduled incorrectly, provider sees it or someone's reviewing it the day before, that patient has to get canceled or rescheduled. We might not see that patient again. We might be you know, challenged and might go elsewhere. And so it should just happen seamlessly. And, you know, if the providers aren't noticing it, that means the decision tree is working. So really it's executing, like it's allowing me as a new registration person or scheduler to be able to come in and support and not have to know the individualized clinic workflow because it's going to walk me through or guide me through some of those steps to make the right decision to execute getting the patient in as soon as possible, but yet making some of those streamlined determinations where I'd be frantically trying to reach out to my peer or flip through an old binder to figure out what's next in the for Dr. So-and-so type of deal. So with that, yeah, knowing, sure. oh, go ahead. Oh, no, you go. <laughs> I was just going to say, so with that, you know, thinking of it from a denial, like scheduling and, and a referral component, there's always a denial portion, right? Like, am I an in-network patient or am I out of network patient as a new scheduler? Does that help me be able to identify, like, are we going to run into a scenario where a patient really sh maybe shouldn't be coming to us and we should have done a referral to a different provider, whether it's in our network or out of our network, it could just be needing a different clinic even setting. Yeah, I can start on that one. I think the, you know, with decision trees, although it's, you know, there's questions that a user is selecting to schedule the patient accurately, behind the scenes, there's a bunch of, you know, there's a rules engine that we're using to drive, you know, what questions the user sees, how they schedule a patient, where they schedule it. And so you can certainly program in some of that logic of looking at a patient's insurance, looking at in and out of network, if that's something that's captured you know, within their registration and driving patients to different departments, different specialties based on the type of referral. Or yeah, if you have misrouted referrals that are entered, um, getting them to the right department. So there's a ton of rule logic behind the scenes that you can certainly employ to route patients effectively. And, you know, it, it provides some of the, the instructions to the scheduler, like maybe this is an out-of-network patient. We can build in, you know, this is my, this is what I need to tell the patient. This is my scripting so that we can work together to get that patient scheduled elsewhere, routed to a different department. And so you, you can see that right in Epic, right? They don't have to remember what that, that looks like. So from a customer service perspective, you know, you're getting a consistent message while also taking care of the patient where you can. And But I, I think the main thing is, yeah, like within decision trees, you have all that rule logic, you have all the registration information, and that's you know, in there within Epic. And so if referrals are required, if it's in and out of network, if we need to validate certain information, you know, that's something that decision trees can build on as well. Yeah. And I guess a lot of this assumes too that the um, patient is 
in the system with the information that the decision tree can tap into. I mean, I don't want to be like dumb Melissa moment, but like um, if it's if it's in if it's in the system, the decision tree will be able to tap into that, and we can program in the appropriate information to appear. Um, and if not, then there could be some other ways of like, this needs to be double checked, but it could be by exception. And it works together with some of the other functions that aren't decision tree specific necessarily, but making sure that like, so maybe there's like the provider finder that's built out or the different tiers that are more in like the, like I guess prelude or benefits engine side. Yeah, and if you have, you know, some of the schedulers that are more schedule schrars doing scheduling and registration, like you said, more so that kind of can work together uh, in looking at the information that's captured, getting that information from the patient initially, and then driving an outcome based on that. I imagine that no two decision trees are the same, like thinking one client or the other client, like even like at a specialty level. Um, it's going to look different. We might ask similar questions, like asking a patient if they're pregnant before they go in for like an x-ray or something, some sort of radiology exam. Uh, but what are maybe some breadcrumbs or hints that you have or learnings that you all have from working across lots of different sites on bringing that specialty specific knowledge into something that could be very, look very different depending on where you're at. Yeah, I think that, um, the entry points into the decision trees there's somewhere it makes more sense of like what's the like reason for referral um and what's like the diagnosis and then there's some that are more of like what's the chief complaint so there's questions that um that there's specialties that are more like diagnosis driven or there's some that are more like chief complaint driven so i think that um those having standards of like associated with how the trees are built also helps with um the maintenance of it um and i would definitely um have included in like the sort of like a governance like group or whoever's like casting this big vision to not only have like this is the reason why we're doing this operationally these are the ways that it's going to um uh be like like how we're going to sustain it and how we're going to maintain it and like the partnership with, with IT on that side too. I, I would say too, like you said, Daniel, they're, they're certainly across specialties. There's lots of differences. You know, we, I think when we think about it, Melissa and I, I'm sure a lot of folks do the same, you know, you kind of think about what are commonalities across specialty where we want to ask similar questions so that, from a scheduler and a patient perspective, it feels the same. If you're scheduling across specialties and we have a consistent experience versus knowing that you know these are common reasons for referral within cardiology, or you know, if a patient is experiencing certain symptoms within cardiology or urology or insert specialty here, we can bring that knowledge from previous implementations across clients to you know, help guide different scheduling outcomes, talk through just important workflows. You know, if a patient is telling you that they have chest pain uh, and they're on the phone, we probably should not schedule them. We should probably send them to the emergency department or something like that. So having some of that starter sets from having implemented them um, essentially across every specialty at this point, I mean, most of them, you know, I think it's really helpful in that we can, you know, provide some of that starting framework, 
especially, you know, when you're meeting with providers, giving them something to react to really helps smooth out the process. And also just understanding between surgical and non-surgical specialties and how we route for, you know, pre and post-op appointments. Some of that stuff is super valuable to have a starting spot from. I would also say that, you know, and I will be the first to admit Melissa's way better. You know, we have these like shiny videos that detail out these like steps front to back for the different scheduling questions and outcomes. And uh, it's really interesting, you know, once you kind of get that all down on in a document, how those things flow together, what's similar, what's unique across specialties. And that's something we can take from specialty to specialty, client to client, and really streamline the process. Speaking of that, what where would you guys recommend an organization even stepping back if they're like, hey, you know what, this sounds great. This sounds like it's something that we should you know, look at, you know, don't want to start big bang, but really kind of want to start small scale. What type of specialties would you recommend initially rolling this out in? I recommend taking a look at what are the highest volume, um, like what are your referral trends and what are your highest volume of, of new patient referrals that are going to a particular specialty? You know, like our current, yeah. um, where Matt and I are working right now, I think what cardiology was a big one, orthopedics. GI. You let out of the game. Yeah, GI. Yeah, I, I think our, our approach was high volume, high dollar, uh, if that made sense. And then we would we sort of said, let's start with a small pilot, four or five specialties to get our feet you know, under us. We picked like the second hardest specialties. You don't want to do like the hardest ones right away because those are, you know, you might uh, kind of get lost in it trying to get those lives. You pick like the sort of hard ones to work out, you know, some of the organization-wide things you want to work on, but uh, then you come back to the hardest ones right after that. But yeah, I agree. High volume, see lots of new patients, um, high referrals, things like that. And from a governance structure, as you guys alluded to that, do you see it more at a higher level? So you're setting what are those foundational components around decision trees across the entire organization? Or do you say, no, we're going to always go into the weeds and really be designing this provider by provider? And, you know, I, I could see that based off of the complexity, it sounds like associated with them, that you're going to run into this provider's gone, here's a new provider. If you get down to that level versus saying, hey, for this practice, this is how this clinic practice is going to operate. Or, you know, I'm sure you've seen both ways of doing it, but, you know, what is your recommendation getting started? I mean, if I were to go to my client today and say, let's roll out decision series in our scheduling area, you know, I would want to be able to say, Here's what uh, here's what our two experts recommend in in that regard. Yeah, I would say like our key stakeholders for our project. You know, we have our director or VP of patient access as a key stakeholder. We have our VP over the clinics. You know, from a clinical perspective, as one of our other stakeholders, and we have a physician champion that is one of our stakeholders for this project. I mean, that's sort of where it starts at. Patient access, of course, for the scheduling efficiencies, and then the clinical leadership there that really drive making sure that we're, you know, standardizing the clinical outcomes there and, you know, engaging the appropriate providers. I mean, it's tough to like, you know, what we ended up doing is for every single specialty we had, we designated a 
schedule or a, a provider lead so that we could say, this is the person we go to. They're going to give us this information. They're going to make those decisions for their specialty and they'll be responsible for engaging the other providers that are with them. But typically we could do, you know, get a lot of the feedback from them in a couple meetings, depending on, you know, how intricate it is or if it's me versus Melissa doing it. Um, but, you know, it's, it's things like that that I think really make the project successful. So at that governance level, you're sort of making those bigger decisions uh, that are going to be across the organization. And then you kind of work down into the, the nuance after that. But yeah, you're right. You got to keep it. You can't design every single scenario. You have providers coming and going. You have, you know, you could do it forever and you'd never quite get there. And of course, you know, yeah, to a certain specialty, you might have 20 common you know, diagnoses that you're getting, but, you know, there's an unending number of different types of patients that might get referred in there. So working through every scenario is just really not feasible. Especially when you know, at the end of the day is like, yeah, I'm going to see this patient next available on my schedule. Any provider can see it. Well, then that's just how it's going to work. So definitely engage those higher level folks and then you kind of work into the details where you can from there. I know a common uh, topic we have on the podcast is like regulation and how regulatory <laughs> efforts can, can sort of uh, not strain the way that we think about maintenance, but just like pivot the approach that we're taking. Is there any regulatory concerns that we have to be thinking about or that are on your radar when, when having conversations with clients? Good question. I, I don't know that there's two. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I think it, you know, you sort of, it, it, from a user perspective, you stray, you're straying outside of like decision trees, quote unquote, when you get into like the other things that they may be working on in the registration model. So like estimates and real-time eligibility and, and some of the things that go with that. And the decision tree is not too much. I, I don't know if Melissa has any other thoughts, but, you know, generally because we're just targeting some of the the scheduling aspects of it. Um, you know, I'm sure any of the listeners out there are probably screaming at us like, of course, Matt, you know, there's this this regulatory component, but nothing that really like jumps to mind. Yeah, I can't think of anything either. Like I'm just trying to think of like in terms of like what might be like if there's prerequisites, but that wouldn't really be regulatory about um scheduling the patient. Well, it's always guys... a breath of fresh air if you don't have to think about it. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Sure. I was like, yeah. <laughs> I have a feeling I'm going to like wake up in the middle of the night and be like, what about this? But no, there isn't. I don't think so. Not with this one. Well, we're going to take a quick break and we'll be right back. Claim Capital is a team of ex-Epic staff focused on preventing denials. Instead of showing what was denied, which is the standard for other solutions available today, Claim Capital pinpoints why claims are denied. By training machine learning models on an organization's claim and remittance data, Claim Capital can identify the causes of denials and recommend changes in EHR build or workflows to prevent them from happening in the future. With a completely HIPAA-compliant infrastructure, no software implementations, and a zero-risk pricing structure, organizations can quickly and safely recover lost revenue. Well, and we are back. So... Thinking of scheduling and that now more and more we're seeing patients and organizations allowing patients to do their self-scheduling, how does decision trees affect the MyChart and self-registration and scheduling? Yeah, on our current project, they're actually um, rolling out to specialties with MyChart um, self-scheduling and decision trees at the same time. 
as um, some of the specialties that we're doing for um, scheduler team in hyperspace as the end users. And I think that some of the guiding principles, like the guiding principles are um, overwhelmingly the same of what are the questions, whatever the questions are that you're gonna be putting in front of a scheduler or a patient, it should really be driving the armed with this information, how does this get to the right endpoint? There shouldn't be information collection that's happening because that's not the right tool or place for it. Um, it really does um, the, the same sort of framework and tools available in both places and you're able to um, leverage one um, to support the other. Yeah, I think it opens up a lot of interesting things because a lot of clients probably start when they're thinking about my chart scheduling, you know, probably, and they're probably thinking about primary care or those types of departments. They're probably the most straightforward to schedule. And from a patient perspective, that's probably true as well. I'm scheduling a new patient appointment. I'm scheduling a physical. I'm scheduling a follow-up visit. And I think on the specialty side, a lot of providers are nervous to cede some of that control of who's able to schedule. And so while you're working with the providers to define these rules, you know, you can have that same conversation. Like, like Melissa said, the same inputs, the same questions that were that a scheduler is having to fill out, the patient can do the same thing and we can ensure the same amount of accuracy and logic behind the scenes to get them scheduled accurately. Um, you know, that's great. And I think it really helps ease the minds of a lot of providers. Um, scheduling into those scheduling departments. And I think it's always a, a challenging conversation to have as like your patient access director, trying to convince those providers of like, you know, opening up their clinic to to scheduling via my chart. So this is a great tool for it. Uh, or having their clinic represent like when they actually see the patients. I think that that's like a really key prerequisite and like a guiding principle and it's like a little bit of like a leap of faith and trust thing too, of sometimes like things are just locked down and there's only one person has permission. And then you're starting to expand it to like more schedulers. And now we're going to expand it to patients. But when you have this tool that supports finding the right place on that schedule, it's just like, like letting go a little bit, but also closely monitoring as well. I think I guess monitoring like what are the things that we do to like make sure that the decision trees are on the right track aren't something isn't something we necessarily talk too much about, but um just making sure like when was the decision tree used? Let's look to see like what if there's an issue, was it the decision tree? Was it something that needs to be adjusted? The decision tree doesn't need to be adjusted with the provider's schedule. That brings up a great point though. Like what data points do you all look at, both for monitoring the success of decision trees, but also just like thinking about looking the after the project, like how do we evaluate uh, what went what went well here? Uh, and what are those key benefits rather than just like anecdotal, like, yeah, I'm happy. Like, I'm sure like the schedules are like, yeah, this is great. Uh, patients are like, yeah, this is great. But what, like, are there any discrete data points that we can look at? I think that um, sometimes there might be specialties or a specialist that's tucked into another department and only some people know about them. And when those start to come out in the conversation, there's more like, like not necessarily like evenly distributed, but like the utilization is up to where the providers like would like to be. There's not like some that are just crazy overbooked and some that are underutilized just because the, the 
scheduler that knew, well, these are the three people that I look across, like there's actually six. Um, so then that also goes into lead time, um, which is an important one because like lead time goes hand in hand with like how, like how many hours are in the day and how many providers that do we have. Um, and when you have appointments that are maybe scheduled inaccurately or it wasn't with the right provider and that's taking up a, a space of time where it should have been maybe directed to another specialty or another provider, those are all factors that start to um, influence and make lead time creep up. So that's another um, metric that we look at. And yeah, so maybe like lead times and or like cancellations due to incorrect scheduling would be yeah. a good good metric to track. Like if you're tracking the reasons why you canceled an appointment and you had to reschedule because it went to the wrong provider or the wrong specialty, something like that. And are you able to track, are you, uh, would you also recommend tracking like employee registered versus my chart registered or scheduled components as well? So you could see like, do you need to modify some of those decision trees associated to patients doing their self-scheduling questionnaires versus what maybe the staff, because maybe the staff know like, oh, this is a nuance. We figured this out. We just need to do this in the meantime. Why? that's being fixed, but patients won't know that. And you're probably not going to want to just shut off a decision, shut off like self-scheduling just because you're uh, having to update a decision tree at that element to not have it be a, a pay to then end up with a patient dissatisfaction in that regard. Yeah, you certainly would be able to track the difference between patient scheduled via my chart versus scheduling by users in the organization and noticing the differences there in terms of who they're scheduled with, when they're scheduled, things like that. So yeah, good point. Well, I'm sure we could spend a little bit more time picking your guys' brains and trying to get more information. And normally we would roll right into our uh, Wilshire lab, which is where a, a listener would normally ask us a question, but wanted to get your guys' final thoughts on what would you say is the biggest takeaway that somebody who's um, thinking about, should we move forward with implementing decision trees within our organization really should consider before going forth and, and putting that on their prioritization list for optimi a future enhancement or a project? Yeah, I can start here. I would say you have to think about decision trees as like an overall referral intake of the patient, getting that patient seen for the first time or scheduled into a specialty or primary care area, kind of take it all as one big thing. You could really focus on decision trees very narrowly, but it, I mean, I think you, you have organizational goals of improving that referral process from beginning of referral to getting that patient seen or from discharge of that patient on an inpatient or ED to getting that patient routed back to your specialty care or, or established in primary care. Those are big, meaty projects that I think decision trees are a great fit for. Some of the questions that were um, coming up a lot from our uh, from stakeholders are what, like, like, why is it so difficult to get into these practices? Why is it so difficult to get in to receive care at our facility? And there could be a lot of factors for that. But when you go through a decision tree project and you're looking from front to back or like what 
Like, how does this look like for the patient? What is a decision tree? And what are some other things that might need to be tightened up and cleaned up a little bit? Like, got to protect your scope for your decision tree project. But if someone really wants to get their arms around, like, what are all the gymnastics that are happening? Start with decision trees. It might open up some other things of like eye opening of like, oh, wow, like, there's, um, we need some different, like, uh, like, staffing approaches here or different technology or, whoa, that's been really broken for a while. No one said anything. Let's get that cleaned up. Like uh, just the decision tree project just from like organizing all of it starts to reveal those things. So I think that um, it's a really powerful uh, way to get a conversation going across all of these areas that should be working together. And then also at the end of it, having something that um, is scalable and boosts efficiency too. Well, thanks. Uh, thanks for your both uh, for the final thoughts. I'm going to wrap us up here. Uh, so Melissa, Matt, thanks for joining us today for uh, season two, episode eight, planting decision trees. And instead of telling listeners where they can reach out to you, because I know we do this all the time. And Matt, I think you've probably given your email away a couple of times now. Uh, I'm going to let you all choose either a fun fact or something you learned this week. Uh, what What do you have for our listeners today? Fun fact or something I learned this week. Have I been living under a rock this week? That's what I've learned this week a little. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't think anything really that fun happened uh, for me this week. So I don't know, Daniel, sorry if I'm being lame. There's a lot of fun stuff, a little interesting stuff that happened in the world around us. And maybe we'll save that for another podcast. <laughs> <laughs> Very fun. Yeah, I know we have you coming up for one later on this season, Matt. So we'll look forward to it. Yeah, time number three. Looking forward to it. We'll wrap up for our listeners. Everybody, thank you so much for listening today. That's it from us here at the Wilshire IT Roughcast. And if you do need to get a hold of Matt or Melissa, you can check them out on LinkedIn or at their emails that you can access from our web, our, our website. That's it. Have a great weekend. Bye-bye. If you liked today's episode, continue to join Wilshire Wednesdays. You can follow us on LinkedIn or Twitter at Evan underscore Wilshire. Daniel can be followed at Daniel underscore TWG. Wilshire Group at TWG Health. On Facebook at the Wilshire Group. Or on Instagram at Wilshire IT Revcast. Remember, if you prefer to watch, come check us out at the Wilshire IT Revcast YouTube channel. If you have an inquiry, want to share your thoughts, or get additional information on today's episode, email us at Wilshire Podcast at the Wilshire Group. The best way to support this podcast is to review, rate, and subscribe. See you next time. Bye-bye. The Wilshire IT Revcast is hosted, produced, and engineered by Evan Martin and Daniel Bianchini. It is executive produced by Gretchen Case, Hank Smither, and Spencer Thielman. The Wilshire Group. Experience you can trust. Results you can count on.